Welcome to the Fezoro Podcast. No telling what you might find. Listen in on talks and discussions ranging from dream analysis to spiritual or psychological topics to some other things. Soak in the good vibes and thanks for joining us. You taught me how to speak, showed me what to eat, yeah, you gave me lots of friends. You showed me fire burns, you taught me tables turn, now I'm turning on the heat. You've seen what's happened to primitive societies that are unsettled by white man's civilization. They go to pieces, they disintegrate, they succumb to vice and disease. And isn't that the same thing that's been happening to us since our myths began to disappear? Absolutely it is. Isn't that why conservative religious folk today are calling for a return to the old-time religion? That's right. I understand their yearning. In my youth, I had fixed stars. They comforted me with their permanence. They gave me a known horizon. They told me that there's a loving, kind, and just uh, father out there looking down on me, ready to receive me, thinking of my concerns all the time. Now science, medicine, has made it a, a house cleaning of belief. And I wonder what happens to children who don't have that fixed star, that known horizon, those myths to sustain them. All they have to do is read the newspaper. I mean, it's a mess. But what the myth uh, has to provide, I mean, just on this immediate level of life instruction, the pedagogical aspect of myth, it has to give life models. And the models have to be appropriate to the possibilities of the time in which you're living. And our time has changed and changed and changed and continues to change so fast that what was proper 50 years ago is not proper today. So the virtues of the past are the vices of today. That was a recording of an interview of mythologist Joseph Campbell by Bill Moyers from the video series The Power of Myth. As a member of the Baha'i Faith, it's important for me to connect with other religions and to learn from members of other faiths. For one thing, the Abrahamic faiths serve as a reference for my own beliefs and practices. I also have some Jewish blood and culture in my family, by the way. Religion is one of the themes I intend to periodically include in my podcast. Recently, I found myself interested in exploring Judaism and found opportunities compatible with that interest, which arose and were happy coincidences for me. I have had an instinct since I was little to seek to understand people who seem or are supposed to be different from me, whether with regard to religion, race, or to any other distinction. I feel like this really comes from my desire to understand myself better by seeking a broader and richer feeling for what humanity is about. I also suspect that this instinct is healthy and natural to people since birth, despite that cultures often program people for suspicion of differences. Today's episode is part of a series I'm developing on Judaism. I won't be running these episodes back-to-back, but we'll have other topics for upcoming episodes interspersed. Today we'll be listening to Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who recently visited Belmont University, where I currently attend school. We'll hear the first part of his discussion about his perspective, which is Jewish, amidst his broad religious interests. I feel like he does a great job introducing some of the relevance of religion generally in this first half of his talk, 
and that this serves as an excellent entry point for the series on Judaism. I think you'll find he has a rare rhetorical and rational gift for conveying some of the insight and inspiration of religion. As usual, I will include some of my own thoughts about the discussion after the end of the episode. Without further delay, let's listen in. He's been everything from a management consultant at, a Fortune, at Fortune 500 companies to uh, being a congregational rabbi. He's the director of the One River Foundation, host of the radio show Essential Conversations, and editor of the forthcoming World Wisdom Bible, which you can find on Amazon, by the way. Look it up. Um, so please join me in welcoming Rabbi Rami Shapiro. I thought we'd just talk about God in general and the five basic ways that we, we talk about God, that people can, uh, have, have to talk about God. So I want to just lay these out for you, and then we'll just open it up and we'll see where it takes us. So there are these five basic categories of belief. And the first one, the, the most common way people talk about God is theist, or theism, or someone is a, a theist. The second is an atheist, or atheism. That, that's why I'm putting them right next to each other. The third of the five is agnosticism. And these all form a tribe. They're variations of the same thing. Then you get something called pantheism, pantheist. And then the last one is called pan there's a P-N in there. So, theism, atheism, agnosticism, pantheism, and panentheism. Right? So those are the four things, that I, the five things I want to talk about. When you think about God, what's the relationship between God and creation? If we were going to map it out, where would, if this is creation and this is God, where would they go? God here, creation here. Is that, I'm looking at that just yes. I, Oh, we were doing like, yeah, no, I was doing Y and Z. Okay. <laughs> so God up here, creation down here. Anybody else have an alternative? Just like all here. All smush. Just like all here. Okay. So those are two, the two basic ways that, that people do that. You know, look at that. So, so a theist, someone who sees God up and creation below. A pantheist is someone who sees them all smushed. All right? That God and creation are really maybe even one and the same thing. So let's start with, with theism first. So the theist says, and there are dozens and dozens of variations on this in, in different religions, but basically, the theist says that God is a self-conscious being out there somewhere who created the world, judges the world, watches over the world, um, and the relationship is one of, I mean, through prayer or whatever it is, but distance. There's, there's a, a gulf between the two of them. So if you're down here, if you're part of creation, you're praying to God as a separate entity. Now, there are variations, like the deist, um, the early founders of, of the United States. The deist said, yeah, God is the creator out here, but God isn't involved. God isn't judging us. God isn't paying any attention. God may have actually just left this dimension to run on its own, 
without staying engaged at all. Um, but, but for the most part, theists believe that God is engaged. God is a self-conscious creator being who establishes certain moral codes for us, good and evil, and then judges us at the end of our lives and determines our fate after we're dead. So how, how many of you would see yourself in the theistic camp? Four. All right. The opposite of a theist is an atheist. But they agree as to what God is. So just bear with me for a second. The theist says God is a being out there somewhere, self-conscious, blah, blah, blah. The atheist says, yes, the word God refers to a being out there somewhere who created the universe, who has moral code, judges us and all of that, Good point. but does not exist. <laughs> the theist and the atheist agree on their definitions. The only place they disagree is the theist says, yes, there is such a thing, and the atheist says, no, there is not such a thing. So it would be just like if, if we had a discussion on unicorns, we would probably agree that a unicorn is a big white horse with a spiral horn in the center of its head. Some of you may think there were unicorns, but they died in the flood, maybe, of Noah's flood. Some of you may think there still are unicorns. Others will think, no, there were never unicorns, there are no unicorns. I don't believe in unicorns. But you would all agree that a unicorn, whether or not they exist, the word itself refers to a big white horse with a spiral in the center. Is that, is that fair? So... That's what the atheists and the, and the, uh, the theists and the atheists are like. They both agree as to what the word God means. They just say it's not real. That's why if you read any of the, if you ever listened to lectures by or read the books of um, modern atheists like uh, yeah, Dawkins. Uh, Dawkins, right? So his understanding of God, when he uses the word God, he's, he's using the theistic definition and then saying it's bogus. There is no such God. An agnostic agrees with a theist and an atheist on the definition. God is a separate being outside the universe somewhere, creates the universe, sets moral codes, judges us when we die. And then the, the, the agnostic, that's what the ag means, you know, not, the G-N-O is knowledge, the A in front of it is no knowledge. So the agnostic says, look, I don't know enough. No one can know enough. It's impossible to know enough to, be, to believe, to be a theist, or to be an atheist. You can't know. So if the three of them were having a discussion about unicorns, you know, the believer would say, yes, there are unicorns. The a-unicornist would say, no, there are no unicornists. And the agcornist would say, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. I can't know. How many of you fall into the atheist camp? Anybody going to cop that? So one, one, two, two brave souls. So maybe I'll talk you out of it by the time the class is over. Uh, how many in the agnostic that you just don't know? The agnostic says she or he doesn't know, but tends to um, practice you know, religion, if, there is, if, if they do at all, closer to the atheist non-practice. In other words, if you don't know whether there's a God, I just don't know. Most agnostics are just not practicing a specific religion. Now, some of you who say you're agnostics, you may actually be practicing a religion. But how do you know which one to practice? Any, anyone in the agnostic camp who's actually practicing? Go to church or whatever. 
Yeah. So, so why do you go? Uh, my girlfriend forces me to. Yay, all right. <laughs> really Rule of thumb. Girlfriend, always right. Yeah. <laughs> don't forget your wife's birthday. Right. So, yeah, so that's, that's the reason you go. Okay, I get it. Um, if you weren't dating her, would you go to church? Probably not. Probably not. So, you ever hear of um, Pascal, Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher? He created something called Pascal's Wager. So since you don't know whether there is or there isn't a God, you don't lose anything by believing. It's not You didn't really lose anything. But if you don't believe and there is a God, you could then spend eternity in hell. And if you do believe and there is a God, you could spend eternity in heaven if you, you, know, if you believe. So, so his wager is uh, wagering your eternal soul on the afterlife. You're better off betting in favor of a God than not. The problem with Pascal's wager is Pascal is a Catholic living in a Catholic country with no other religions to choose from. But today, if you're going to try Pascal's wager, there are dozens and dozens of religions, hundreds of gods. How would you possibly know which one to choose? So I'm Jewish. I was born Jewish. I'm going to give you the details, but I spent 10 years seriously sitting cross-legged in, in the Zen world. Eight years ago, I was initiated into Hinduism. But I don't consider myself a Hindu, and I don't consider myself a Buddhist. I'm a Jew, because that's sort of my ethnicity, that's how I grew up, that's how I live my life primarily. But I didn't choose it. I chose not to leave it, but that's more like, because my girlfriend, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I chose not to leave it because when I was younger, my parents would have been devastated, so I didn't want to do that to them. And then I got married, and then, you know, my kid, and all that, so they're all Jewish, and so I didn't, you know, so I'm still there. But if I had to choose, if you were born with a blank slate and your parents didn't give you a religion at all, and when you were, let's say, 18, you had to decide yes to, or no to religion, and if you decide yes to religion, you'd have to pick one of the dozens and dozens and dozens of choices, you wouldn't know how to pick. You'd have no criteria, because we have no idea which one of them is right. If you're in a religion, you assume it's true. So, so, you know, I was born into Judaism, so I stuck with it. I'm Jewish. But if, Christ, if Christianity is right, and, that, and there's no such thing as Christianity, there's no such thing as Judaism, there's different kinds of Judaism, different kinds of Christianity. So, so I'm, I'm being very loose with this. But let's say if Southern Baptist Christianity is right, then I'm screwed. Because it's, it's not like I don't know about Jesus. I've taught the historical Jesus at the university. I've studied Christian theologies in different, different schools. You know, I know the, the, the creed. I know what Jesus is supposed to stand for. And I just go, nah, I don't buy it. <laughs> well, at that point, if that, if that religion is true, then I am screwed. And I know I'm screwed. So you think, well, maybe I should do it. Become a Southern Baptist. But when I go to India, which I've done many times, and I sit with my Swami friends, and they're all you know, doing their, their religious practice. And they're telling me, no, Jesus? No, 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 it's not Jesus. It's Krishna, or it's this one, or it's that one. That is sort of why we, we hold on to things. It's sort of ingrained in our heads. So those, those three are the same. You follow, follow that questions on those? On those? Pretty much what you, you know. So pantheism, what's your name? Mine? Yeah. Emma. Emma. So pantheism is 
what Emma called shmush, right? Where, where the theist says God is up here and the way, the way you put it, God is up here and creation is down here. They're separate. The pantheist says, no, there's no separation. That God and nature are really one and the same. And honoring traditions, shamanistic traditions, Wiccan kind of, kind of religious traditions, pagan traditions, are, are ones that say, no, the, the earth is in fact divine. The earth is in fact holy. And a pantheist will say that nature equals God, or God equals nature. You can even find that in the Bible. What's the first line of the Hebrew Bible? In the beginning. Yeah, right? In the beginning, what? God created. I'm yeah, the heavens and the earth. That's it, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God, in English, it just says God. But in the Bible, in the Hebrew, the word they use for God is Elohim. Or did you just write that back? No, no, no. Yeah, good, good question. Hebrew goes uh, right to left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who said that? So does Arabic. Yeah, so, yeah Arabic too. The theory is that these ancient languages were written on clay tablets, and most people are right-handed. So if you're right-handed and you're doing a clay tablet thing, you would take the, or, or if you're doing stone first, you take the chisel and you hold it in your left hand, and you hit with your right hand, and so the way to yeah. go would be that way. That makes sense. Maybe. <laughs> Makes sense because I was thinking like you'll get your hand over the thing you're writing, but not if you're holding the chisel. Right, like right. Hand, yeah. So maybe that's who knows. Uh -huh. But okay, so so it's it's the word Elohim. The word for nature in Hebrew in the Bible, but in general, is Hateva. So so you have these two words, Elohim and Hateva. In the Hebrew, in the Jewish tradition, letters act as numbers as well as letters. So every letter has a numerical value. So you add up the word here, and you get the number 86. The word hateva, so it's going to add up to 86 also. The word for nature and the word for God have the same numerical value in Hebrew. Elohim and hateva. And according to the, the, the rabbis, ancient rabbis, if you have words with the same numerical value, they're considered synonyms. So even thousands of years ago, you had people who said, look, God equals nature. And that's the pantheism point of view. So it's not a new idea, and it's not even an idea that is antithetical to the Bible. They found that in the Bible itself. So everything is God. You, the chair, the floor, whatever you see in nature is God. Even everything you don't see in nature. So um, you know, dark matter and dark energy, the, the universe that you and I see is a small percentage of the actual universe that exists, like St. Paul says, the seen and the unseen. It's all God. Right? You got that one? Where these guys are saying, God is here and the world is here, creation is here, universe is here, the pantheist sees it all together. God isn't the creator necessarily. God is, you might say, creativity, and creation is what comes out of that, but there's no separation between God and nature. The third one has this little en in the middle of it, pan-en-theism. En is Greek for in. So here, everything, that's what pan means, is everything. Everything is in God, so nothing is separate from God, the way the pantheist says nothing is separate from God. But God is bigger than nature. So the, the analogy there is the ocean and the wave. This is a Hindu analogy. The Hindus will say, 
God is like an infinite ocean, and creation are, is like the waves of the ocean. So whether you're talking about a person or a dog or a twig or whatever it is, all things that exist, for however long they exist, are simply waves on the ocean. If you added up all the waves, you'd never equal the sum of the ocean. The ocean's always bigger. So their argument is, everything is God, but God is bigger than everything, even the sum of everything. Does that one make sense? I mean, you understand what I'm saying, you don't have to agree with it. So those are the big five categories in which people wrestle with this whole notion of, of God. When you're a theist, God determines good and evil. When you're an atheist, God also determines evil, but there's no God, so you're on your own. When you're an agnostic, God also determines good and evil, don't know if there's a God, have no idea what there is as far as right and wrong, I'm on my own. So this one has a clear ethic involved with it. God somehow sets an ethical standard. In How many of you have ever read, and I haven't, so don't feel bad if you haven't read them, um, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky. Now, so you know, I mean, it's one of those big books. I'm never going to read it. This is all you have to remember from the book of time. You can say, oh, well, you know, in Dostoevsky, he says. It sounds good if you reference him, but I haven't <laughs> read the book. But I read the little section that uh, I'll tell you about. There's a line in Dostoevsky where uh, one of the brothers, Ivan, says, without God, all things are permitted. Mm-hmm. That's his ethical stance. And, and that's the ethical stance. It doesn't really matter if Jew, Christian, Muslim. If you're a theist, the, the tendency is, you know, without God, how many T's are permitted? Two T's. Thank you. But if there's no God, I could have put one T. Who cares? <laughs> all things are permitted. Even misspelled. Yeah. Where do you sit in terms of the broad categories? I'm a panentheist. Okay. Uh, so let's let's talk about this. Without God, all things are permitted. What what's what's he saying? What's that mean? That uh, I guess the idea of God establishes some sort of yeah. order or rule. Yeah. If, you, if, if there were no God, you wouldn't know what was right or wrong. So I mean, you've probably I mean I heard that in synagogue all my life. God tells you what's right or wrong. It's written down in the book. Luckily, I, I can read it, and so I know it's right or wrong. So, when God says, kill every man, woman, child, and cow of the Amalekites, it must be right, because God said it. So, you know, the Bible was not written for little kids. If you, you know, you go to the Barnes & Noble, you know, you go in the little kid section, there are all these Bible stories. Noah is one of the big ones, right? You know, that, what's that song? Noah, he built in me. You know that song? Like, no? It's a stupid song. But it says, Noah, he built him, he built him an arky, arky, you know, he put all the animals on the arky. So we, we turned this amazingly complex, dark vision of God and humanity, which is the story of Noah, and we turn into a, a little story you're going to tell four-year-olds. And, and, and there's, you know, so you tell them, yeah, well, you know, God got so angry at people that he decided he's going to wipe out all the people except for this one alcoholic guy and his family, Noah. And because Noah was an alcoholic, if you read the story. He says, Noah, he liked Noah, he's going to keep him alive, and then he's going to keep two of every animal alive, so he's going to kill all the animals, even though he's only mad at the people, he's going to kill all the animals, and put the, the few that he saves on a boat, and they're going to sail off for 40 days and 40 nights, and then they'll start you know, populating everything all over again. 
And, and you tell this as a little kid story, and you don't really focus on the, that part, but you know, when you just imagine you're, all of humanity has been drowned, and you're in the ark, and you look out the window to see what's going on outside, you're seeing all these loaded dead bodies everywhere. But you never see that in a children's book. They clean it up. But the Bible is not for kids. It's not a clean, nice, neat, oh, isn't that great? God tells you to love your neighbor, and then God tells you to commit genocide against this whole people. How do you, how do you find ethics in the Bible when the Bible is so... Unethical. Unethical at times, right? And don't think, well, sometimes, well, Jesus is that different, right? Because Jesus doesn't do that. And we love to talk about Matthew 25, what you've done to the least of these, but what happens to the people who didn't do it to the least of these? They go to eternal damnation. How does the God of love damn people for all eternity? If you believe that God tells you what's good, what do you do with the stuff that you know is evil, but God seems to tell you to do that too? It's not rhetorical. I'm actually asking. There's a heart behind it. There's a heart posture. Like, um, who was it? Like, someone had to kill their son. Was it Abraham? Why did God do that to him? But why, why did God want the death of his son? Or maybe God didn't. Because he loved him. Of Jesus? Or no, no, no. no. Oh, that's enough. We can come to that too. No, Abraham, sticking with your, your example. Okay. Why would God tell Abraham to kill Isaac? Mm-hmm. I mean, why is that a sign of love? Because I think when you love someone, you trust someone. And um, obedience just comes with like faith and trust in God, and I just think love and trust and faith all Right, so you figure, you figure, and, and if I'm putting words in Yeah, I don't know why. But, um, well, no, you, you said it well, I think. I mean, okay. it's actually similar to what Kierkegaard says mm-hmm. when he says, because he uses that story, and he says you have to suspend your ethical positions and trust that God knows best. Mm-hmm. There's a line in, I'll come to you a there's a line in the Quran where God says, Allah says to the people, um, I'm going to tell you to do some stuff that you don't want to do. He's talking about killing people. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you to do some stuff that you don't want to do, but you don't always know what's in your best interest. But I know, because I'm God, so I'm telling you to do this, and you'll have to trust me. So Kierkegaard says something similar, that, that if you believe in God, and you believe that Abraham believed in God, and that he trusted God, so he would do whatever God demanded, even if what God demanded seemed wrong to Abraham. Right? And then in the end of the story, God doesn't doesn't actually kill him. So you can say, ah, see, that was the test. Was did he trust God more than his own morality? The, the challenge with that one is, and, and I, I didn't forget, I'll come back to you, is when God does something that Abraham really doesn't like. So Abraham was willing to go along with killing Isaac, but when, when God tells Abraham that, he's, that God's going to kill all the people of Sodom, what does Abraham do? Well, there's just one Yeah. He says, the line is, he goes, shouldn't the judge of all the world, because he's a theist, he believes that God is the judge, shouldn't the judge of all the world do justly? And God says, okay, what's that? And then Abraham says, what if there's 50 decent people in the city? You can't kill 50 innocent people. And God says, okay. And then Abraham says, well, what what about only 45? You're going to kill them because we're missing five? And then he goes down to 40 and 30 and 20. And he goes down to 10. The idea in that story, 
is that God doesn't know what's just. God doesn't know what's good. Abraham teaches God what's good. Because God thinks it's good to just wipe them all out, like he did in Noah. But Abraham says, no, that's not it. So, if Abraham hadn't argued with God, then God would have said, no, I'm going to wipe these people out. And he would have wiped them out, just like he did in, in Noah. So the question is, who was the more moral? Was it God who was going to wipe out the t- whole town? Or Abraham who said, no, you can't wipe out the innocent with the guilty. And we don't know, because there were no innocent in, in the story, so they all got killed anyway, except for Lot and his family. But the, the question is, does God really know best, even in the, even in the stories? At the end of this selection, Rabbi Shapiro asks some questions about the morality of Yahweh in the Bible. The next episode of this series will examine these questions further and take us into some illuminating Jewish approaches to inquiry. He also talks about this idea that religions all sort of have their own validity. This may seem like a fairly modern idea, at least to some Western religious practices. I've long been fascinated by Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung's clinical approach to religion and take it as a model for my own attitudes as I pursue my psychology degree. In Memories, Dreams, Reflections, he recounts the case of a Jewish woman with a neurosis which he helped her to resolve. He saw it as a problem of detachment from her ancestral faith, a common contemporary problem. He saw no trouble in helping reunite a Jew to the Torah, although he himself was not Jewish. Reflecting on this episode, he writes, I have frequently seen people become neurotic when they content themselves with inadequate or wrong answers to the questions of life. They seek position, marriage, reputation, outward success, or money, and remain unhappy and neurotic even when they have attained what they were seeking. Such people are usually confined within too narrow a spiritual horizon. Jung's pragmatism and sincere respect for other people's religious experience is something I can admire. What is it about religion as a topic in modern Western society which makes us often feel responsible to persuade others about our way of viewing the world, or which cause us to have a tendency to just sort of cringe in the presence of tensions between differing religious ideas and practices. I like how Rabbi Shapiro seems at home in his faith, while equally, he seems to be inquisitive and appreciatively at ease exploring and learning from the traditions of others. For me, there is always this sense that in ways which are important and fundamental, these various faiths are connected. Virtually universal are the attempts in all religions to engage the important questions of life which Jung talks about. Questions which help us to find some of the meaning of existence and to ennoble and harmonize the quality and character of our experience. One thing that intrigues me lately is how religions attempt to adapt in order to fit into the contemporary situation while retaining, and I would say even deepening, and protecting the authentic spirit and nature of the faith. My exploration of Judaism lately suggests this is a tradition which is doing this well. When Carl Jung talks about those important questions of life that demand a legitimate and sufficient response, and as I have listened to Rabbi Shapiro, I wonder, is it possible to live with an openness to faith and at the same time to retain 
the capacity for rational doubt? Is it possible to be open to experiences, callings, instincts, which are religious, spiritual, or intuitive, and at the same time to develop an ever greater capacity to think rationally and scientifically? Do religions really contradict one another? Are science and religion somehow fundamentally incompatible in some ways or in some cases? For me, if there is a God, that doubt and the rational mind must be God-given. Without these, we have no protection against conformity and deception, and we have no real control over our fate, or our prejudices, or the limitations of our situation. Also for me, I can't help but see powerful universals which are fundamental to the different religions. More often than not, these similarities strongly reinforce and affirm the insights of the diverse traditions. Perhaps it's germane at this point to read from a comment my friend Robert emailed me by way of feedback concerning my podcast. It reads in part, I wonder if there might be a large frame or framing device for the entire show that gives people a sense of larger context for the world that you tend to explore. For lack of a better example, Rod Serling's opening to The Twilight Zone provided people with a sense of what the show would be about. I get the feeling that you've already done this to a certain extent, but bringing in more elements from your home life, including what your marriage has brought to it, your religion, your children, your feelings about your immediate neighborhood in the world in which we live, etc., might make the show even more inviting by virtue of giving the viewer something to grab onto before they even begin to experience each episode. I appreciate Robert's feedback and feel encouraged to bring a little more of myself into the podcast, though I don't want it to be about me. I'm going to explore ways to apply his advice in future episodes as I have attempted to do here. Also, to be honest, I'm still learning what my podcast is about even as I produce new episodes. As food for thought, and to round off this episode, which began with an excerpt from Joe Campbell, I'm going to leave you with another selection from the same source. If this has been stimulating for you, perhaps you'll be interested in continuing to accompany me in future installments of my Judaism series. You can tell what's in foreign society by the size of the, what the building is that's the tallest building in the place. And if you go to Salt Lake City, you'll see the whole thing illustrated right in front of your face. First, the temple was built. The temple was built right in the center of the city. Yeah, I mean, this was the proper organization. That's the spiritual center from which all flows in all directions. And then the capital was built right beside the temple. And it's bigger than the temple. And now the biggest thing is the office building that takes care of the affairs of both the temple and the political building. That's the history of Western civilization. From the Gothic through the princely periods of the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries to this economic world that we're in now. Thanks for listening in once again. I hope to hear from you. You can visit my site at fazoro.com. That's Foxtrot Alpha India Zulu Oscar Roger Oscar.com and click on the Fazoro podcast link where you can leave comments and view any show notes and resources. You can also email me at fazoro at gmail.com. Folks, thanks for joining us. Tales, your long-forgotten gale. No, this ship ain't gonna sail. Mm-hmm.
I'd be standing in the stern You taught me how to learn Now I'm learning your cheating ways Oh, you taught me how to run Yeah, oh, you taught me how to run Yes, it did, oh, you taught me how to run Oh